Okay. Um, I got it as well if you guys want. Guys, I, I got the room. I got it. We're good. Bill is in, so I'm going to start moving people. Hey, Andrew. Hey, Bill, you there? I'm here. How are you doing? Great. My first time in Clubhouse. Woo! Welcome to Clubhouse. Oh, man, we're so excited to have you. Well, thanks. I hear you have a drink in your hand. I do. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I better not drink too much of it because I want to give coherent answers. No, it'll what, make what for a more drinking? entertaining conversation. It's totally fine. No, you're right. <laughs> so, Bill, th thanks for doing this. We're, we're, I just wanted to have a, a casual conversation, talk about everything that's going on, everything you've been thinking about. I know you're in the middle of this, this crazy book tour. We should talk about that, too. Uh, but I should tell you, when we put this thing up uh, on Twitter, the one, the one thing everybody said to me was, Bill Gates has, has an iPhone. I actually use an Android phone, but because uh, I like to keep track of everything, I'm often playing around with the uh, iPhones. But the phone I carry around happens to be Android. So a a Android versus versus Apple, you, you, is is this is this a religious thing though? Well, some of the Android manufacturers pre-install Microsoft software in a way that makes it easy for me. And they're, they're more flexible about how the software connects up with the operating system. So I, that's what I've ended up uh, getting used to. I, you know, I, a lot of my friends have iPhones, so it's, there's, there's no purity. I know, you know, purity. And I know Paul, Paul's work, Paul, you're working hard on an, an Android version of this, right? We are. Yeah. We're so excited. Someone, someone asked us the other day, what our, the top feature we're excited to build is, and we said Android, <laughs> you know, I mean, right. yeah, I mean, it's so important, right. Especially globally. So Bill, have you played around on this thing? I've made demos, uh, but no, it's just in the last few weeks, it's come up a lot. Uh, you know, a friend of mine was just in the Steve Jobs stories clubhouse uh, yesterday and telling me that how much fun that was. Yep. Well, go ahead, Paul. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, that was an amazing room. It was a lot of the original engineers from, uh, you, you know, the original Apple and Mac team sharing stories about it. I, I it was, uh, that was a great room. No, I'm sorry. I missed it. I could have added a few stories there. I know. I can't even imagine what that would have <laughs> added to the conversation. No, it was, a, it was an amazing relationship. Steve was so unique. Well, I, I want to let you and Andrew um, speak. Bill, but I just wanted to seriously say how how excited and grateful we are to have you be part of this conversation. Like we we heard it was going to happen, and the entire team was was just so excited about it. I know it's gone beyond that too. And and I just wanted to thank you for everything that you've created for the new book, for for everything that you've added to the world. It's really changed so much of what we do as startup entrepreneurs. So um, just really really grateful to be in the room with you today, and and uh, to have you here. Right. And I'm, I'm learning about Clubhouse, so it's uh, two two things at one time. <laughs> well, any questions? We're we're here to help. So um, it, I'll pop back down to the audience, Andrew. But um, if I can help with anything, just let me know. Sure, sure. Bill, question though for you about social media. Do you get, do you actually personally get to play around on social media a lot yourself? Um, you know, when people send you links, you end up you know clicking through, scrolling through quite a bit, uh, but. I tend to go to, you know, The Economist, The New York Times, pretty directly to my favorite news sources, uh, more than, than people who just are using a feed to find the, the stories they read. You don't have a burner Twitter account? Well, I, I have a Twitter account that I just mess around on, and then I have my official Twitter account. And that's from most of the services that there's the official me, and then there's the messing around me. Are, are, you, are you ever a TikTok guy? I mean, did you see, have you, I, I, the reason I'm asking this, I'm curious if you see, like, obviously right now everybody is fascinated about Clubhouse and the future of Clubhouse and what it's going to do. And Twitter's trying to do one and Facebook's trying to do one. But I was curious if you, if you feel like you've seen over the years, like that you caught on early to that Facebook was going to be a big thing or that TikTok was going to be a big thing. No, I'll give my daughter more credit on TikTok. Uh, I 
I didn't realize that there was such an unmet demand for watching people dance. Uh, but then, you know, there was the whole divestment thing that Microsoft was at least uh, looking at that. So I, I got very up to speed uh, as part of that. I even did a few goofy videos. Yeah, I didn't even, I gotta go watch this. One, one thing that I, I have to mention is um, in the very first version of Clubhouse, my co-founder Rohan and I, Rohan sitting in the, in the front row here, um, the whole app was a single room and uh, you know, everyone followed everyone and everyone was a speaker. And we had a, a little alert set up every time a new person would join because we always wanted to make sure that the conversation got started. So I would be on, a, on the phone with Rohan, we'd be like, you know, working and I'd hear like a little alert sound and I'd hang up, I'd be like, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. And I'd hang up and I'd jump into the room and say, hey, how's it going? I'm Paul, how'd you hear about Clubhouse? And I always compare myself to Clippy. <laughs> just being there waiting for people seeing if I can help so 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 Bill you've been in the middle of this uh, crazy book tour we've, we've seen you uh, all over 60 minutes everywhere uh, before we even get into the book and, and what's going on with climate uh, and, and I want to talk pandemic and so many other things do you actually enjoy these book tours and, and especially this one in particular because it's all virtual I'm just curious how it's going yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I don't have to fly. I do uh, at most two a day. Uh, some are fairly specialized, like Columbia or Stanford or groups of experts who work uh, like a Sarah conference type thing. But the nine, nine are just sort of city-based. We get different questions, and I pick people I enjoy uh, talking to. Uh, you know, Trevor Noah did one. Uh, Rashida Jones, uh, I just did one with Christian Walk Welker, uh, which was great. So they managed to bring their own uh, touch to it. Uh, I'm sure a couple weeks from now, I'll uh, be ready to move on. And do you read all the reviews of the book? I do. And so far, uh, it, I'm, I'm very happy. In fact, uh, we just hit today the uh, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. It's a big congratulations. Generally, by the way, do you feel like you have thick skin, though? I've always actually been curious about this. We've never talked about this because you're written about constantly. I mean, virtually every day in one context or another. Well, uh, climate, you better have thick skin because the amount of oversimplification and misunderstanding is pretty broad in the field. It's a very, it's a field that's so important, but I'd call it at an early stage. And you almost have to be polymathic to understand it because there's science, there's economics, there's these models, there's weather. And, uh, you know, I try, uh, you know, not to get frustrated if people are, you know, like saying it can be solved in 10 years or saying that it doesn't matter at all. Uh, I, you know, I have to steel myself up for that, you know, so that I'm giving a, a, a persuasive answer as opposed to an emotional response okay so i want to i want to go deep on some climate stuff if, if we could um and i've read the book now i think twice and we've talked a little bit about it ourselves uh uh you and i i think i think two or three times now uh before this conversation um and, and i wanted to talk a little bit about nuclear energy because you go you you go deep and hard on that on that issue but you also go deep at the issue that we spend a little bit too much time these days and we're too obsessed with the ideas of EVs, for example, electric vehicles, and that we need to spend more time thinking about things that most people don't spend time thinking about, which is things like, you know, cement and steel and farming. And so I was hoping you could sort of prioritize how you think the public should actually think about these issues. Well, a key point of the book is there are a lot of emissions, 51 billion tons a year, and the goal to stop the temperature rise is to get that to zero. Uh, and if we can do that by 2050, then the, we limit the amount of damage that gets done. Understanding all those sources, because you know zero doesn't allow you to skip any. If it was 50%, you would skip the harder ones, and unfortunately, because we've mostly paid attention to near-term reductions, 
So we're putting most of our effort into the rollout of wind and solar and electric cars, which are phenomenal. I, I'm, you know, to prove that in some cases we can get the scale up and get the extra cost, which I call the green premium down, that gives us hope. It gives us a model for all the other areas, but we are deeply under invested in areas like cement and steel that, uh, you know, are way more emissions between those than all the passenger cars in the world. So on cement and steel, how far are we away? I mean, it feels like- We basically really haven't away. started. We basically haven't started. The Breakthrough Energy Venture got going in 2015. My commitment to the, the heads of state who did the event with me where we, they committed to double the energy R&D, I committed to them to create a venture group that was totally specialized with a very deep business and scientific team just investing in, in big climate impact things. And so we've invested now in all the different areas. We found more in storage and in food than we expected. So our second fund, the second building we just started, will push super hard to find more in the industrial areas and direct air capture, uh, including what's called green hydrogen that, that if it got cheap enough, would help solve a number of the industrial processes. Okay, so let's talk about, you used a different phrase. I was gonna call it carbon capture. You said you just said something else. How far are we away from that for real? Well, there's a company called Climeworks that if you pay about $600 a ton, uh, they will uh, take the CO2 out of the atmosphere, liquefy it, and put it down in a mineral formation where it'll stay for millions of years. And so to get rid of my own personal offsets, uh, one of the things I did was uh, pay them. I also pay for green aviation fuel uh, so that when I'm flying, it's not, uh, you know, there's no net emissions. You know, I'm using solar panels. I have electric cars now. Uh, so direct air capture exists. And I've invested in a lot of companies that are working in that area. Uh, we want to get the cost down at least to $100 a ton. But even that uh, would be too expensive for most things. Uh, Elon Musk put out a challenge recently, which was great, uh, to say, okay, who thinks they can get to the lowest price here? Uh, and you know, a number of the companies I'm working with are going to uh, try and, and win that prize. Did you just say you're an electric car owner? Yeah, I own, it's a kind of a, not an every man's car. It's called a Porsche Turbo Titan. Uh, but it's, I, it's, it's fun. Okay. So why Porsche and not Tesla? You know, everyone's probably going to get a pick up on this. No, Tesla's a fantastic car. I bought Tesla's for relatives. I just, my very first car was a Porsche, uh, you know, it makes a certain sound. Uh, so, um, you know, Tesla's the company that's done the most for electric cars done a brilliant job is Tesla. How, okay, one more Tesla question. How far ahead do you think Tesla really is? Meaning, do you part of part of the argument about its valuation, about so much of Tesla right now, is that its battery technology and everything else is just you know leap years ahead of everybody else, and that when GM and 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 Audi and Volkswagen and everybody else and BMW and Toyota get there, they're still going to be behind. You you buy that? Well, for the key components. There are people like uh, QuantumScape uh, that, uh, although they're not shipping yet, you know, they're, they've got a, a strong valuation because they have a, a better battery. Uh, you know, Panasonic, you know, continues to improve, continues to supply lots of people. So I don't think there'll be only one electric car company. I was very impressed that GM uh, said that by 2035, they're going to stop making gasoline cars. So they... The amount of creativity uh, by all the car companies going into this, partly because Tesla has shown that the market is there, it is phenomenal. That category, the what I call the green premium, will go to zero because the costs, the upfront costs will go down, there'll be more charging stations, there'll be quick charging. And so the idea that you no longer make us in cars, that you know, people don't rebel when politicians or CEOs say, 
uh, that's that's coming. So you're personally offsetting your own carbon use. You're spending something on the order of, I think, $7 million a year to do that? That's right, which I don't pretend that that kind of brute force approach works for everybody, but I have found, you know, truly gold standard permanent uh, emission reduction so that I uh, am helping to bootstrap those technologies, become a customer and get the price down. And uh, the, even going through that process to zero out my emission showed me how immature some areas like green aviation fuel are. You know, I'm now by far their biggest individual customer and I've gotten them to go to more airports than uh, they were in before. So what do you make all these companies that are buying carbon offsets? Typically they're, they're effectively saying they're protecting or, or, or protecting forests and trees and the like. Is that, is that real to you or is that, is that carbon offset feeder? It's fantastic that companies are buying offsets. Uh, if you go back five years ago, almost nobody was doing that. Uh, now, some of these offsets are high impact and some of them are very low impact. And so as we work that through, the overall quality of offsets will go up. But the companies that are buying offsets are to be congratulated for caring about this cause and putting significant money into those offsets. Uh, it's up to the innovators now. We're going to get offsets uh, to you know, a variety of those out there. And we're going to do a better job of certifying, you know, there's a few places you plant trees where they'll last a long time. There's other places where they won't. We need to mature uh, the, the, how we rate the quality of those offsets. But I love the companies that are writing checks and buying offsets. So separately, you've gone big in terms of investing in, in nuclear energy, and it, it's a controversial thing to have done. And, and at the same time, we've had conversations about wind and solar and, and how quickly you think that can ramp relative to everything else. There's a big debate about that, which is to say, where should the U.S. government and governments around the world be invested? And politically, being invested in nuclear has not been a palatable solution thus far. What do you think about that? Well, nuclear energy has provided uh, an immense amount of uh, green energy and the health benefits of using nuclear versus say burning coal are super dramatic. You know, even if you account for the, the few accidents, it's by far the safest thing. However, I wouldn't say that today's generation of nuclear reactors, it has a path forward. They are just too complex and way too expensive. And because their safety relies on operators to do the right things, their reactors with very high pressure inside the reactor, we need a complete from scratch generation of reactors that people call fourth generation, that there's no high pressure, that it's the physics alone that says that the radioactive material won't leave uh, the site area. And it means, uh, you know, using uh, metal sodium for the cooling instead of water. You know, water boils and gets very high pressure and wants to leave the site, whereas uh, a sodium pool, none of the afterheat uh, can cause a problem because of that heat capacity. So nuclear needs innovation because economics are what really killed nuclear. Once we get this demo plant done, which will take five years, it's half-funded by uh, the company which I uh, guarantee and half by the US government, then people will see, okay, how does it look for safety? How does it look for cost? And then we'll have the hard challenge of saying to people, yes, this nuclear is super important to reliability of the grid to let us decarbonize the grid. And so please have an open mind as you study uh, the, this particular breakthrough. So, but how fast do you think that can happen realistically relative to, and this is the other issue, wind and solar? Well, wind and solar are today 6% of US generation and less than that on a global basis. And let's say you're gonna have the renewables carry 80% of the load, which I think is, is realistic. If we build enough transmission, we get some advances in storage and we have the final 20% be 
always available non-weather dependent uh, green, which means nuclear fission until someday fusion comes along. And to get to that 80% implies a build rate over three times the peak of what we've achieved so far. And so, you know, you could say I'm the biggest proponent of roll that stuff out. Now you've got to connect it up. We want to bring offshore wind into the mix because that's near to the East Coast where we use a lot of our power and, and that won't tend to be down at the same time as the Midwest West wind is down. So it helps the reliability equation quite a bit. So, you know, 80% is kind of mind blowing. Uh, we're not yet on a path to get that type of penetration. So, okay, different question. Uh, Green New Deal, you believe it? Do you buy into it or no? Well, I like green, I like new, I like deal, but if someone thinks we can solve the climate emissions in the United States in 10 years, you know, I, I need to see that plan. It's just not realistic. And remember, we're not, this is not just about brute force getting rid of US emissions. That's less than 15%. This is about using the innovation power of the United States to reduce the green premiums for all areas of emissions. And so that even countries like India, who you know needs basic shelter, basic electricity, because they are going to require air conditioning, uh, they in 2050 will look and see if this stuff is super expensive, and we're not willing to subsidize the trillions that it would cost at this point. They're going to keep doing it the way and say that hey, it's up to the rich world to deal with this problem, although they're very much on the front lines, and so. The overall extra cost, uh, which is the total green premium, which is over five trillion right now, we need to bring that down by about 95%. And the US has over half of the innovation power that will allow us to do that. Europe needs to be part of it. China needs to be part of it. India needs to be part of it. Uh, but it's kind of a global problem. Uh, and it's way, way, way too expensive to be green, particularly in the manufacturing categories. So, Bill, I just discovered while we've been having this conversation that we happen to be competing against another room called, and it was only on Clubhouse would this be the case, climate and Bitcoin, the favorite topics here on Clubhouse. Bitcoin seems to always get into every conversation. What do you make of the whole, let's take out, take, take the Bitcoin price out of it for a second. What do you make of the climate argument around Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin uses more electricity per transaction than any other method known to mankind. Um, and so, you know, it's not a, a great climate thing. Now, you know, if it's green electricity and it's not crowding out other uses, eventually, you know, maybe that's okay. So I don't see the topics as, as deeply related, even though you might label me a, a Bitcoin skeptic, that is, I haven't chosen to invest money, I buy malaria vaccines, I buy measles vaccines, you know, I, I invest in companies that make products. It's not a, hey, somebody's going to buy this for more money than, than I pay for it. But, you know, I, if other people find their fortune that way, I, I, uh, I applaud them. But, but you don't think, and there are people who believe in this, I'm, I'm sticking with the climate thing on Bitcoin for a second. There are people who believe, uh, uh, and these are our Bitcoin bears that given the energy requirements to create and maintain the Bitcoin network that actually ultimately, uh, given all of the uh, societal efforts for climate, that actually regulators or rules would be imposed or make it more expensive to actually hold Bitcoin. No, I don't. I, I should look at the most bullish projection on what percentage of the electricity demand it would be. There are other ways of doing digital currency that our foundation is involved with, which are done in local currency. The transactions are not secret. They're reversible. You can't use it for ransom or, or things like that. And yet the transaction fees are so low that it's empowering the poorest. So, you know, we worked with India uh, to do their digital currency. We're working with all the countries in Africa. So I'm a huge fan, the biggest investor uh, philanthropically in digital currency so that 
financial services are available to everyone on the planet. And you've invested a ton, but by the way, what we haven't talked about is batteries. You've invested a ton in batteries and frankly lost a ton in batteries. Why? Well, if you fund enough battery companies, uh, you can take a, a large fortune to make a small fortune. So uh, look, it's a hard <laughs> area. Uh, and when we say batteries, remember there's two markets for batteries that are their requirements are utterly different. One is car, a battery for an electric car where the weight and the size and the not having a problem when you have a crash are key parameters. Then there's grid batteries. Grid batteries are over 20 times harder, and that's companies like Form Energy, uh, which is an uh, investment of breakthrough energy. Very exciting because they started over with very cheap elements, and they, they said, okay, we can give up some efficiency if we're super, super, super cheap. And of course, you, you don't have to use a battery to store energy. You could use a heat store, like a company called Malta that Breakthrough Energy helps spin out of Google. Uh, there's unusual ways of storing energy, like Quidnet wants to pressurize water underground and have that pressure come back, almost like you know pumping water uphill, but here you can do it almost anywhere. So uh, if you take storage broadly, yes, I'm by far the biggest investor in all these different storage approaches because that's got to be an element of having this gigantic green grid. You know, for example, when Tokyo gets a typhoon, wind and solar would be off for seven days. And yet, uh, you know, they, they, you know, that's a challenge. You don't want people to freeze there like they have been in Texas. Talking about, uh, well, I wasn't gonna just talk about Texas, but let's talk, let's talk actually about food and farming. You, I was just reading, you, you happen to be the largest farm owner in, in the country now? Yeah, that don't think I personally went around. Uh, you know, it's not a Green Acres type story. Uh, my investment team buys a broad set of assets uh, and a number of uh, small farms, big farms uh, have gotten into that portfolio. Uh, but, you know, that's my delegation to them. And uh, so it's, it's a significant, significant asset. Okay. So, but now, now Bill Gates is a farmer. So what do you, so how do you think about that? What do you, what do you do with all the cows? Uh, I'm not sure how many cows we have, but you know, whatever product category you're in, you, you face competition. So if people can make artificial meat that tastes as good and costs less, uh, even ignoring animal cruelty and some of the health benefits and the greenhouse gas benefits, you know, that's just a form of competition. I don't know if that can happen, but so far, Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, and several others like Nature's Fine are doing food production in novel ways. And so that, you know, could just be a, an overall helpful thing in terms of bringing the cost of food down. In terms of farming in general, uh, we're likely to use some amount of biofuels. And so that's an additional demand, probably not ethanol, because that ended up having fairly high emissions, uh, although uh, you know there was a lot of it that was made. But I don't think farming in general is a bad business to be in. Um, I, I wanna pivot in a sec to, to talk pandemic with you and just the future of the world and how you're thinking about so many other things. But um, you know, for, for me, this book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster was, was an education, but I heard for you the book that was your education was Weather for Dummies. And I wanted to understand how, why that was, what happened? Well, I read a lot of books. I highly recommend Weather for Dummies. I highly recommend Voslav uh, Mill, uh, who, whose best book is Energy and Civilization. The Dummies books, you know, are, it's an ironic thing. They do a very good job reminding us why clouds gather, what the types of clouds are, why it rains around mountains. Uh, and that, as I was coming to look at all these dynamics, uh, you know, before I ask dumb questions of the experts, I want to have uh, grounding. So, you know, it's, it's very well written. 
Okay, so let, let's pivot if we could for a little bit for uh, talk about the pandemic because you were early on this, uh, you were very early on this warning us all about it and you've been involved in, in, in a very intense way. Um, and I think so many, hopefully there are people on this call that have uh, gotten the vaccine, a lot of people waiting desperately to get the vaccine. You, you've gotten the first shot, right? I had my second shot actually a week ago. You, you had your so only, congratulations. Yeah, it's the only time I've ever been thankful to be such an old person, 65 years old. Okay, so you have your second shot. Okay, so now, okay, now this gets interesting. So you, I hope you've now started to look at a calendar. When and you always, to me, were always almost over program, over scheduled in terms of all the things you had to do. When are you going to start moving around again the way you used to? Well, I want to set a good example. Uh, if you're vaccinated, you can still transmit. It's not as likely. But unlike severe disease that is, uh, becomes extremely rare, you still have a possibility of transmission. So, you know, I'm not going to stop wearing masks or, you know, be careful, particularly around older people who haven't been vaccinated. Uh, and, you know, of course, I'm with my family a lot who, uh, you know, they're young enough that they're not yet vaccinated. So, you know, it's only by late spring or summer that we're going to get to numbers where uh, you can look at changing your behavior in a significant way. Okay, so, but, but, but help us. If you were looking at a calendar now and you had to talk to your assistant and say, okay, we got, we, on this date is when we're going to start thinking about whether we make a trip here, whether we go here, whether we start having meetings, what, 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 what day or month does that look like for, uh, for Bill Gates? Well, an important issue is getting the vaccine, not just to the rich countries, but to all countries. And that's a huge role that the uh, investments and efforts of the Gates Foundation have involved with. We've you know, started up factories in India that are, are very high volume. And so global travel uh, will still, you'll have to be careful uh, till sometime in 2022 because of this inequity that the vaccines aren't getting out there. In the US, the supply uh, situation is getting good. The logistics are okay. We still don't know if the demand, that is the trust that people want to take the vaccine, uh, including in uh, you know, people of color who have some skepticism about the health system. Uh, we need to get very high levels of vaccination before the transmission levels will drop to near zero. But I'm hopeful we'll get there. And I'd say domestically in the US, uh, people will be able to do more, still wearing masks uh, in the right situations and still not you know, big uh, full stadiums. But by summer, things will feel very different. And schools in the fall, I would expect that basically all schools will uh, be open. Okay, but you know I have I have small kids. I think, and I don't know, I'm curious what you think. I think they're going to be in school in the fall. They're in school now, actually, wearing masks. But I think they'll be in school in the fall wearing masks again or not. Well, wearing masks isn't some huge disastrous thing. Uh, you know, there's some places where when I play tennis, they have me wear a mask and I fog up my glasses. But, you know, even that's not a big deal. So, you know, it's not expensive. You, you know, we're kind of used to it. Uh, you know, I would continue to model that behavior throughout the fall uh, until we're absolutely sure the numbers are, are very, very small. And how much do you worry, though, about potentially either the South African variant spreading or the fall and winter being tougher? I had a conversation with Dr. Scott Gottlieb the other day who was saying, you know, we might we might have a nice spring and summer, but it might get more complicated again. Well, he's absolutely right that this is a seasonal disease, and that'll be the test. Is there a fall wave? I don't think there will be, but it depends on getting those vaccination levels up and helping the other countries so we're not having constant reintroductions. Your point about the variants is a very good one. Our foundation was funding studies in South Africa as that variant appeared. Now, we didn't know that would happen. We funded those studies so that there was some safety data from the continent of Africa and so that we could do studies that included people living with HIV. But it, it ended up informing the world 
for three of the vaccines, AstraZeneca, Novavax, and Johnson & Johnson, how the effectiveness was against that variant. And, you know, it, it didn't reduce the Johnson & Johnson and Novavax by much, AstraZeneca a little more. So the fact we had that trial there was very helpful to say, okay, do we need to tune the vaccine, uh, which, you know, might mean a third dose for people already vaccinated. And the companies are hard at work looking at that. And do they need to do multiple varieties? How do we cover uh, the full set of variants that are showing up in the world? Fortunately, mostly have common features. And so it looks, this isn't like a disease where you'll need a, you know, a 10 valent vaccine with 10 different forms. At most, it'll be two or three. Do you think warp speed worked in the U.S.? And, and the, one of the reasons I asked the question is because what you're seeing happening in Britain, at least, it looks like they're really moving ahead of us, in part because they approved the, the AstraZeneca drug, which I know was something that you were supporting. Well, the reason the U.S., the, the, the U.S., it was actually BARDA, then it got renamed that funny name, but BARDA funded four of the five gold standard vaccines. Pfizer chose not to take government money, so they did the deal with BioNTech and funded it themselves. But the next four, including Moderna and the three I already mentioned, if it wasn't for that BARDA generosity, those things wouldn't have moved as quickly as they did. The next biggest funder was a, a thing our foundation is part of called CEPI. But even in total, uh, CEPI was less than half of the BARDA checks that went out. So the, the one thing the US gets a good grade on uh, in this whole pandemic, the only thing was funding the R&D for those vaccines. And, you know, that was a huge contribution for the world. And so on a relative basis, what are, actually, let me ask you this. Countries that we, is there any country out there that would surprise us about how well they're doing with this in your mind? Well, Australia, Vietnam, New Zealand, uh, you know, every country is doing something right. But those three uh, caught the disease early instead of having the idiocy of doing the travel ban and then not testing the people who came in. So I guess the big next question beyond trying to figure out what next winter is going to be like is what do we need to do to avoid this next the next disaster? And and uh, what, what do you think that's, that could even be or look like, how often do you think this is going to happen to us? I think if you put aside uh, intentionally caused epidemics, uh, bioterrorism, the risk per year is like two or three percent. And so even at that level, though, doing the right things, uh, spending tens of billions to avoid the trillions of dollars in damage and all sorts of damage that doesn't even get into that economic figure of mental challenges and education loss, that that insurance policy is, is a very good deal. Now, the thing the Gates Foundation will do is make sure that those tens of billions are actually not just beneficial to the next pandemic, but you create a standby force that's working on things like malaria and measles, normally keeping their skills sharp. And if there's any hint of a pandemic, which will we'll build a hundred times better surveillance system including high-skill diagnostics, those, say, 3,000 disease fighters will, you know, drop the current infectious disease work they're doing and just totally be the brilliant people to make sure the quick epidemic response happens on a global basis. So I'm actually pretty excited that those investments in the R&D side, things like getting mRNA to be cheap, which it's not yet, getting factories all over the world, getting a, a new way of doing the diagnostics that's PCR, so very, very accurate, but also very cheap. The, the innovation during the crisis was strong, and that's a foundation that will advance not only global health infectious disease, but that BioNTech vaccine platform. Actually, the main reason they uh, made it was to go against cancer. Our foundation invested in that company to make sure they'd have money to do infectious disease also. But this is pretty profound advance, you know, 10 years of progress uh, in less than two years. Okay, putting the science and innovation part aside for a second, I have a behavioral science question for you, which is, do you think that the world, or let's just take the United States 
learned a, le a lesson in this so that we're actually going to be better off next time. I I'm not talking about the science of whether we can get a vaccine. I'm talking about whether you think when something like this happens, people are going to take seriously the, uh, the, the real risk. They're going to actually listen to experts. Or do you think that the whole idea of expertise and science has been upended during this period? Well, I think the quality of leadership you have during a crisis matters. If a leader is willing to share the bad news, uh, if the leader you know, is really getting the data out, encouraging more testing to be done, not having a testing system where you don't get your results within 24 hours. I mean, the number of mistakes were pretty unbelievable. We were lucky this thing wasn't more fatal than it ended up being, uh, but it's still, you know, half million Americans, that's an unbelievable toll. And of course, the global toll is much higher than that. I do think that for at least a generation, people will have this threat model in mind and that the government will take the right steps, even though, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of the people will never believe it. You know, apparently that's true for the election also. But, uh, you know, this is serious stuff. Uh, you know, most people know somebody who died. Is there a leader that you think actually did a good job in this? And, and I'll throw a leader out. I'm in New York right now, and it, it, but it's but it's also that's also gotten upended, which is a lot of people looked at Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York and thought that actually, you know, putting aside what happened in the first first month and a half, uh, that he actually had done a very good job of being what people thought was transparent. And now there's questions about, frankly, whether he's being that transparent at all. Yeah, he called me during the pandemic because there were various models that gave him uh, such a range of how many ventilators he might need. And I would say, you know, on a Saturday night, uh, I got to talk to him about that. He was clearly forthright, but some of the policies about putting the numbers out and transferring people into homes where they might have caused infection, you know, we'll be digging through what mistakes were made and what was done well for a long time here. You know, in his case, there's some definite, pos very positive things he did but you know, now we're looking at the whole way that the numbers got reported. Uh, if you want a pure example, you'd say, you know, the leadership in New Zealand, uh, in Australia, in Vietnam, countries that had had a little bit of either SARS or MERS and understood that you have to get the commercial PCR machines. And anyone who comes into the country, you don't just do a travel ban and force a surge of infection into the country without without the testing. I mean, that's so basic. And to brag about that as though it was a smart thing, that's really wild. Well, let's hope there's a, there's not there's not another pandemic uh, in the end. A um, couple personal questions before before we end this. Um, t tell us just about how you're what, what is what is the day in the life of Bill Gates actually in the pandemic? Uh, it's a lot of Microsoft Teams, a lot of Zoom. Uh, you know, I can schedule myself without, you know, any time between meetings. So I have to be a little careful there. Uh, you know, maybe get up and stretch. But, like, but, but are like, are you at home? Do you go to the office? What time do you wake up? Do you, is there a gym? Is there not a gym? Are there other, are there people that you would have seen in the past that you're now not seeing? Are there people inside your house that you don't have? How has it changed? I mean, I know, you know, some people have, gotten rid of everybody other people have you know how's, how's it work for you well i feel lucky that i have home a home with a very good internet connection so actually uh my kids uh senior in high school a junior in college and a, a second year medical student i've seen them more this year than i would have expected because they uh were home a lot doing their courses online so it's mostly just our family. Uh, you know, I get outside to play pickleball, even in, in the cold weather. Uh, that's been super nice. Uh, not pickleball. having to make any, any international trips is a huge change to my schedule because, uh, you know, I go to Africa, China, India, Europe, uh, you know, all several times a year. And it's amazing. I can talk to African leaders and do like a 20 minute uh video connection get a lot done uh so there are certain advantages even though you know the whole thing is a tragedy 
Okay, let's talk TV because I know you watch a lot of TV. Well, we could talk books too, but um, TV binging during the pandemic for you. Anything you want to recommend to this this audience? Well, I sat down Monday to eat dinner and I was going to finish reading a book uh, called Overstory, but instead I clicked on this uh, Lupin, which is a French burglar on Netflix. Uh, next thing I knew, four hours had gone by. So uh, I really let myself uh, go to seed that night. And I was kind of laughing at myself uh, that I don't usually do that. But wow, it's, they sure make it easy. You just sit there and the next episode uh, is up and running. Anything else on your uh, on your TV list? From we've, we've had a whole year. I, by the way, do you think the content's gotten better or worse during this year? Because I feel like I've sort of run run through a lot of stuff. Some stuff is starting to come back. That's okay. Well, there's so much stuff that you worry there's good stuff that you're missing. The quality overall, if you compare to say ten years ago, it's mind blowing how good this stuff is. The complex plots, the the choices, you know, even just in the documentary area. Uh, it's it's quite phenomenal. I have a strange taste that I take a lot of college courses, which is on a, a channel called The Great Courses. Uh, that's about, you know, a third of my viewing, uh, where it's right now I'm taking a course on the Old Testament, which is definitely fascinating. But, wow, if you want to learn stuff, uh, this is the era that it's it's all there. So when you're taking these courses, watching this stuff, and your kids come in the room, are they like, Dad, what are you doing? Why aren't you watching something on Netflix? Or or, or do they sit down and want to actually watch with you? No, it's not much. I mean, you know, my son and I watched The Americans together. That was a, a fun experience. It was a little too violent for the, the rest of the family. Uh, you know, Modern Family, we all watched uh, together, although uh, that's that's not recent. You know, it's it's nice that uh, once you get going on something, you know, kind of the whole family does it together. But my courses, you know, those um, I'm pretty much solo on those. And, and are you a gamer, by the way? You know, Microsoft obviously is in the game business. No, I, you know, I play bridge, uh, which by some definitions is a game, uh, but it doesn't require a, a video game. Uh you know, I've got the latest Xbox. I played around with it some, but I'm not a heavy gamer. I I sit and watch my uh, nieces and nephews. I learn more from them than my own personal use. Did you, by the way, did you? Have, we were talking about social networks at the top of this because we were talking about Clubhouse. Did you ever fund any social networks yourself early on? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Microsoft and MSN uh, had you know, the same kind of chat forums that other people did. Uh, and of course, Microsoft owned shares in Facebook because uh, we were doing some things where we were looking at search and Facebook working together. But uh, no, that, you know, LinkedIn, of course, now is part of Microsoft and that's doing extremely well. Okay, serious question, and I'm getting it on Twitter. Do you use Google or do you use Bing? I use Bing. You do? Of course, I look at Google to compare to see how we're doing competitively, and it's, I'm always uh, happy with them. But no, I'm a no, I'm a loyal, loyal, loyal Bing user. You're a loyal Bing user. Okay, this is interesting because I, so I have to admit, don't hate me for saying this. I don't know a lot of people using Bing. Well, you and you so, just travel with a very, a very snobby crowd. It's a. <laughs> it, may, it may very well be. Absolutely. Be You've got to come down here and get with the masses and use Bing. So, uh, uh, tell before, before, you, before you go, tell us, what are, what are you doing these days with Microsoft itself, by the way? Uh, Satya makes it a lot of fun for me to do product reviews. So often stuff that's, uh, you know, we're planning the next year or two years, of things, the really high reach stuff. I do a lot with the agent. Uh, I'm a big believer that agents are going to be, you know, 100 times better than they are today and that I want Microsoft to lead in that. I do a lot with Office, with AI, with Azure. You know, I love the product reviews. So Satya's got me now where I'm doing the part of the job that I enjoyed the most. And, you know, I mean, there's enough good work that I can provide a lot in uh, uh, encouragement, some hints about how to do things differently. 
so I spend, uh, you know, it'd be two or three days a month, although the pandemic's reduced out somewhat, I'll catch up, I hope, this summer. If you take Microsoft out of it, who right now do you think is doing the most interesting work in terms of agents, AI, and really, you know, futuristic stuff? Well, Google and Microsoft are the two hardcore R&D companies. You know, yes, Amazon's doing great work, Apple's doing great work, Facebook, but in terms of really pushing the boundaries of computer science and architecture and AI, uh, I'd say Google and Microsoft have that strong R&D commitment, both stuff that they share openly and things that they do that focus on their own products. Um, so, you know, it's incredible. I dreamed of having R&D budgets like Satya has today. Um, so if I can help him steer it a little bit better, it's potentially uh, high impact and certainly a lot of fun for me. What do you think of the idea of like an Apple making a car? Mm. You know, I doubt they'll make the same margin they make on the iPhone. Uh, and, you know, autonomous cars still, how quickly that catches on and do people own cars? That's unclear. Electric cars, that's, clear. you know, over the next 20 years, dramatic shift. Autonomous is still the one where which countries it catch, catches on first, how safe is it? That's open. So, you know, even though Google got in there with Waymo early, you know, maybe Apple can make a contribution there. Usually you do products, you, you don't want to be the 100th one to do a product. Uh, so you, you've got to have kind of a unique uh, take on a product if you want to get Apple-like margins. Is there a piece of tech in your life right now that you, that, that you use that's that's new or cool or different? I, I, I was asked this question the other day and I my answer was I'm wearing an aura ring. I don't know if you know what that is. It's, it's this- um, Oh yeah, I, I a, wear my aura ring every night. I check my REM sleep. I sometimes fall short. I try and think, I, hey, did I snack too late? Uh, no, I'm, I'm addicted to auras feedback. Hold on, oh, how, how are your numbers? I, I'm on a seven- Not too good, it often but, says to me, it, it says to me in the morning, it will be okay. And I always know yeah. that's a bad sign. Uh, that, that is a bad sign. Uh, mine says, uh, go easy. That, that's what I got today, go easy. So I don't know. Um, I want to uh, thank you for this conversation, Bill, uh, and to tell you to go easy. We appreciate uh, you joining us. Uh, this, was, this was a ball. Uh, I hope we have an opportunity to do this again. Frankly, I hope we have the opportunity to do this in person uh, sometime soon. Uh, when I'd the love world, to. Uh, does go back to normal, but uh, thank you and thanks everybody for joining. Uh, this was a lot of fun, and uh, if you do have a chance, and I, 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 I will push it for you, Bill, because I, I enjoyed the book. Though. I know you, I know you have become a, a book influencer. Somebody somebody actually just sent me a text uh, saying they're buying uh, Weather for Dummies, but uh, Bill's book is called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. So thanks again. Thanks. That was great. See you guys. And Paul, thank you for, for making this all happen and hooking it up. Uh, they're in your office.